So a few weeks ago, we did an episode on CSS and I was asking you lots of questions, Tom, uh, that I was struggling with. Um, we didn't get time to do all my CSS questions last time. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind answering some more because I've got a lot. <laughs> so yeah, something tells me we may not get through all of them this time. I <laughs> <laughs> this might be a, re a recurring thing. <laughs> so my first question this week is, how do you break up different CSS files? And what I mean by that is, do you have everything in one like main.css? Do you have some of your, C I, mean, I guess people starting out have their CSS in the HTML as in like the style bracket. I, I feel like that's a bad thing to do, but I, I don't know. But is there a way of like breaking CSS up? Is there a, a known method or a suggestions for how to break up different parts of the CSS? Yeah, there is. I, then I guess there's two competing um, Oh, but multiple levels there are two competing things uh, at the top level is do you want to have your css inlined in your element in, in your dom like you were just saying like at the top in your head you have a style tag and you put your css in there there are some people think that's a good thing and that's because of performance like if you make one of the most expensive things in http is requesting assets and making a round trip to a server to get something and bring it back um, so there's the concept of critical path CSS, which is the stuff that's really important for your page to load should be included in the first 14 kilobytes of uh, data that comes back. It's actually just the HTML file that you, you send, your index that gets sent to the, to the browser. So if you put the important bits of your CSS, the stuff that governs the layout and the stuff that appears at the very top, if you put that in line, you save yourself a request and instantly your page can load much faster. Like it can render and paint the screen much quicker, so there's not it's not necessarily bad to put inline CSS in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's I think of a couple of instances where I do use inline stuff, but that's not the question, is it? The question is breaking up your CSS. So you can have lots of different CSS files. You could have like footer.css and header.css and the different styles associated for each in di literally in different files and call them in. Um, but doing that increases the number of requests that you're making. Um, so there's a performance hit from doing that. What a lot, of, a lot of people do, what I tend to do on most projects and have done just kind of instinctively for a long time is use a CSS preprocessor, which takes CSS that you write and mun munges it up into a normal CSS file, but allows you to like, do things that are not necessarily baked into the language, like including other files inside files. So, um, the, uh, the preprocessor I use is called SAS. And I think that's the most pop. I, I think it's safe to say that's the most popular one. There's other things. There's less, um, less being the name of it, L E double S. And there's uh, post CSS as a, a kind of node scripts that will do things to your CSS after it's been written. All of these, the thing that unifies them together is that they, you write something that looks kind of like CSS, or is CSS, and they. Mm -hmm before you deploy your project, bundles it all up into a CSS file. Um, have you used any pre-processors? Pre pre can you even say pre-processors? Pre Preprocessor. I can say preprocessor, but I don't, I don't think I've ever used one for HTML or CSS. Um, I guess just CSS. Um, but I guess that adds another build step, doesn't it? So you're adding more complexity in the, the build than the... 
Uh, potentially, but there's, I mean, one of the things that I say a lot when it comes to CSS is the complexity has to live somewhere. Um, and if you've got a build process, if you've got a pipeline, you've got CI, you've got stuff being automated, it's well worth doing. And and it, mm -hmm. and it once you, you kind of set it once and you forget it. And it allows you so much more efficiency. Like, I think it's really important to break up your CSS files by concern, like have them in kind of coherent chunks. Because if you just have, I mean, when I first started, I would just have literal thousand line long CSS files with everything all in one place. And I'd use like elaborate comments and ASCII art to denote the different sections, um, <laughs> which is fine if it's small. I know like old versions of IE had a certain character limit of the amount of CSS in a single file that you could load. It was like somewhere around about the thousand or 2000 line mark. It would kick in and you'd have to like shard your CSS into two different files if it got that big. <laughs> but I think uh, it's, I guess that doesn't matter with preprocessors because it's all getting munged into one file anyway. Um, but it's really useful to have your stuff structured by concern. And it means you can start using methodologies for organizing. Um, so I use a thing invented by Harry Roberts called inverted triangle CSS, or, uh, Ooh, which mystic. is about the inverted triangle of specificity. So you'd familiar with specificity in terms of in the context of CSS? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, so an ID is more specific than a class. So if you put a okay. rule on an ID, yep. it will override the rule on the class. Yeah. But then like there's certain rules. So if you have like dot class name space H2 arrow, something, you just make your rules more specific. And the more specific they are, the more power they have and the, they'll override other things. Um, right. Okay. And to make, to keep maintainable CSS that you're not constantly overriding things and that you can use on a living project. So an app, for instance, or a website that gets regularly updated, you don't want to be fighting against your CSS file every time you go in. And like suddenly there's all these rules that you've got to apply and uh, an override. Um, it's much nicer just to be able to add new things kind of piecemeal uh, as and when you want them. Um, mm -hmm. And if you've got some kind of system in place for managing the specificity, you stop having to run into problems like using important. You don't need to use important ever, really. <laughs> I think we touched on that last time, didn't we? We did. Yeah. We did. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that helps that process is managing the specificity. Important Important is a, like a, a simple hack for overriding specificity and instantly making your thing the most specific that it could be. Yeah. yeah. That's a sign that you're not managing specificity if you're using important a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of so you kind of set global things that apply to everything right at the top. That are then not massively specific. They like you're applying them to every p on the page. Every heading gets this style. They're really unspecific. And then as you move down in the order of the files that you're including, the ones down the bottom tend to be um, like really specific components or modules or bits that you maybe only appear once or yeah, don't appear very often. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. That's kind Does that of... answer the question? I don't know if that's actually got to the... We kind of went a bit off piece. <laughs> um, yes, you, yeah, I, I guess you, you can split them out, but use a uh, separate preprocessor if you're going to do that, I guess, is yeah. the long and short of it. And just maybe... So like, I like the idea of just having the header... In the, anything to do with the header, CSS-wise, is in one file. Anything that's general and covers everything could be in like main.css or whatever. I yeah, suppose. and try and think conceptually about how you're putting your 
things together as well. So it's kind of easy to just do, oh, yeah, put all the stuff for the header in the header.css um, mm. or SCSS if you're using SAS the way I use it. Um, but you might find that there are stuff that's more generic than that. There might be layout components like stacks or columns or grids that you want to maybe be in a separate file that comes even before you get to header. Don't just necessarily fall into the trap of putting them in order of how you go down the page to see them. Um, it might be that yeah. you, know, you want to put all your layout classes in one place or all the stuff that manages typography can go in one place. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess whatever works for the person writing it, but it is okay to kind of split them out. Yeah. And I think it's important to have a system, particularly if you're going to be mm -hmm. working with a team on this. If someone else is going to have to come in, you need... They don't necessarily, the rules, you need rules. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to be consistent. Um, and that's yep. what helps teamwork. Um, hmm. Brilliant. That's kind of led me on to my next question. What is the cascade? You kind of answered it a bit, I think, but how, how does stuff cascade? Because like we said a minute ago, I, I used to think, or I do currently think, that you that the cascade works from the top of the file to the bottom of the file. Is that is that the, generally the case? That's the default. <laughs> so if everything you write has equal specificity yeah uh, so if you're just targeting the p tag vanilla p tag mm -hmm. and then you're setting color green and then you do another rule that's just targeting a p tag and it's color blue both of those have the same specificity whichever one is lowest in the file wins that's like the tie break of yeah. the cascade um but really the i think cascade also applies to how things will nest from left to right in the DOM, almost. If you're looking, well, not necessarily in the DOM, but if you're looking at how the HTML is structured, um, if you have a class on your body element, for instance, mm -hmm. those those rules you set a background color on there, uh, like particularly certain things cascade, like font size. You set a font size there that is going to cascade to any of the nested elements within that are covered in the element that has that CSS rule on it. Mm. And okay. that, so that that's really what people mean by the cascade is that you can kind of set a global font size somewhere and then you can use m's to manipulate like type you know in a relative way but like that m is the particular like is a good example of a good demonstration of the cascade because m is relative to its parent uh, yeah. so an m is the like the font size unit uh, so when, when you're setting a font size rather than saying font size 16 pixels you could say font size 1m and that is the height of one the height of what that element thinks the type is so if you set font size 0.8 of an, of an m mm -hmm. and your your font size is like your body global font size is 20 pixels then you're going to have 0.8 was that 16 pixel um underneath yep and but then if you do 0.8 m in something that's nested inside that it's going to decrease the size again it's going to get even smaller. it's going to keep going okay. and you can kind of very quickly sort of asymptotically <laughs> approach <laughs> no font size at all um yeah and that's what we we talked last time about rems didn't we yeah and i guess where this is where a lot of the confusion comes from in terms of css not working the way that people want it to is that i guess the mix of this cascading down in the different i guess different tags isn't it yeah in nest, nested tags um and then also the the cascade or the, the specificity i suppose of stuff yeah is you may do something with a p right down at the bottom of your file but you've done something to a, a p inside a class or something but it's, it's, it would use the stuff inside the class exactly so the, yeah that's the p. Quite yeah right so so how would you what what, what would be the order of specific just like really briefly of in a normal css file 
do I, I'll try it. So would I start with just normal empty tags? Yeah. So like table, HTML, CSS, uh, P, things like that. And then ID, uh, no, sorry, and then classes. Yeah, good save. Why did you, for the, for the <laughs> listeners at home who will follow along, along, why did you stop saying ID? Because ID is more specific because that only relates to one thing. Yes, and you can only have one on a page. And generally, yeah. as a rule, I advise against using IDs for attaching CSS rules to. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I ever do. Mm -hmm. I think I would, I would generally, when I think of an ID, that's like if I'm doing something with a JavaScript or something, I would use IDs. Um, yeah, so, and then classes, and then I guess that's it, isn't it? Yeah, and then it becomes the level at which you're nesting stuff. Um, so if you do dot some class space dot second class, anything that that then becomes more specific than just the dot whatever class you had second the second mm. one by itself will not be overridden uh, will be overridden by itself plus another rule because that's more specific um, and then you can sort of increase that even further with things like the the plus operator or the star or the little um carrot arrow thing um that mean only only direct siblings or only things that are yeah, you can start building up quite complicated paths and chains. One of the reasons for BEM and using the, the BEM is useful is it kind of eliminates that. Like the spec the complexity of that lives in the naming of BEM classes. So you have classes on everything and very rarely mm -hmm. so I I tend to avoid styling native elements like P's and strong tags and em, uh, emphasis tags. I tend to have a class name for those kind of things. Yeah. Um, that's you that that fits within the BEM syntax, and then when as soon as you start nesting stuff, I mean, I mean, generally, if you're going to maintain this, don't ever nest. I mean, nesting doesn't you, with SAS, you can really you can genuinely nest things quite quite deeply. Um, so you can do your hover, you can set your hover states as a nested element within the rule of the regular thing. So if you're styling for a, a link tag, and you want the color to be red, but when you hover over it, you want the color to be blue, rather than having to write another rule. Uh, another say a and then do your color and then underneath it do a colon hover and then write your rule you can kind of nest the combine those two together and put the hover inside yeah. the the main root so that's a one way of nesting the other way of nesting is to have sort of stacked class names or stacked element tags so um like say you've got your wrapper class and then your component class and then the tag of the specific thing you want to target so say you just want to target links inside this one component that actually are also inside this other wrapper that's the nesting of class names and if you go past three in either of those formats something's going wrong and <laughs> it's not necessarily going wrong but you're going to have trouble when you come to edit that or add something else it's, that's what causes it's a common cause of specificity and cascade bugs yeah but yeah okay. cascading and specificity if you can master those two that's 90 percent of the things that annoy people about css <laughs> like they're, ah, they're they're kind of the fundamentals to learn yeah good to know can you set a variable in css so i'm the the reason i'm thinking of this is i want like certain colors to appear on my website um but maybe i want to change the color at some point i don't have to go through and change the same color in the file and even if, if it's that, a hex, that's why i thought of it yeah if yeah. it's a hex code you, you don't necessarily want to write that out every time because exactly. it's easy to get it wrong. <laughs> and it is not as clear as just writing blue. It's much easier to remember, much easier to type. Um, so SAS, which we were talking about previously, the pre preprocessor for CSS, mm -hmm. has variables built in. 
uh, kind of like any other programming language. It takes the, one of the joys of SAS is it makes CSS a bit more programmatic. You can do things like that. So I have a SAS partial file full of my colors at the, that's quite high in the, in the specificity chain, not uh, low in the specificity, so quite high in the document. Um, so one of my default boilerplate CSS starter pack things is a file that just has color declarations in it. And then they get used <laughs> elsewhere in the other set, in the other SAS files. So that's a way of doing variables. Um, CSS does have native variables now in the form of custom properties. Um, I won't describe the syntax because then we're talking we're talking about <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that on a podcast <laughs> characters on a podcast. So, but Google custom properties in CSS and and give it a go. I've had to run in our previous projects. Had to run through a lot of hoops to handle sort of customization of styles. So this is where you set. Um, this is one instance of of why custom properties are really great and why I like them. Um, this is a kind of going into the weeds a bit on the story, but it's yeah, one instance of where this stuff comes in handy is when you are declaring a re like you've got an embeddable component that drops into other people's apps, but you maintain mm -hmm. like the base styles and everyone who uses that widget, that component, they want to customize it to, they want to keep most of what you've styled because they don't care too much. That's functionality. They want that. They want it still to work, but they do want to customize it to match their own application. So it's sitting on a page in their app. So they want it to have their typefaces and their colors. Um, yeah, that's quite fiddly. If you want to do that, like you either have to trust that the developers who are integrating know all about specificity and know the cascade, which is very rare in my experience. I mean, I know we talked about it just now in the other question, but learn those two. <laughs> you are head and shoulders above quite a lot of front end devs, I think, when it comes to CSS. But you don't want to have, you don't want, and also it's tedious to go through someone else's widget and find the exact styles that they've used and the class names and the structure that they've put their stuff together to override it because of you know, specificity is a pain. Even if you know what you're doing, it's not necessarily fun. Um, yep. Whereas if you could just change a couple of variables, like the color variable and the typeface variable, for instance, if they're just variables you can set, custom properties, brilliant. You just have to change it once. And like you say, it changes it everywhere. Um, yeah. so that's a really good use of them. Um, yeah, this looks, this looks good. I'm just having a look and it looks quite simple to use really. Um, yeah, that's great. So I will, maybe we'll just put a link to that in the uh, show notes to the uh, oh, custom yeah, properties. Oh, brilliant. Now that answers my question. Can you do calculations in CSS? So if I wanted, say, the height of something to be half the height of something else on the page, is that is that a possibility? Well, there's two different questions there. Ah, okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah, the height is its own weird, mysterious thing in CSS land. Um, but say you, so you've got a font size and you want something to yep. be 20 pixels high, but then you want the labels next to it to be half the height, like you say, like 10 mm -hmm. pixels high. That is possible with custom properties. Um, when Variables really help with calculations. So in SAS, you can do just basic arithmetic, basic maths with the, your variables, and numbers behave like mm -hmm. numbers, and you can divide them and then add the other. So if you've got like a base type size of, of 20 pixels, and then you want something to be half that, you can just divide it by two. Um, to get that. Yep. Uh, so you just declare your one base font size and then all the others are relative to that. So say headings are always twice the size of par paragraphs and labels are 0.8 the size of paragraphs. That's easy enough to do. Um, mm -hmm. 
used to be that it was only possible in things like SAS preprocessors. Uh, calc has been around for years now inside of CSS and is a way of doing that. Um, I th and combine that with variables and you know, the custom properties rather. And I mean, most people's uses, if you're using BEM, you're happy to use calc and you have to use custom properties. You might not even need a preprocessor if you're not <laughs> if you're not too fussed about breaking up your um, CSS into partials. Like if you're doing a really lightweight thing, it's one less build step to have to worry about. So you can it's CSS by itself. It's quite powerful now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. It seems like uh, it's come a long way. <laughs> yeah, yes, really, really has. <laughs> oh, I'd have killed for calc when I started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, you ready for the next one? Yeah. I think I wrote this in anger when I wrote mm -hmm. this question down. Why do things not work with each other so much in CSS? How can a margin left just not move the margin? I think I wrote this angrily, as in <laughs> why sometimes when I when you write margin left, it won't just doesn't do it. And I guess this is now down to specificity and uh, cascading. There's other things at play here as well. Specificity and cascade is useful. I mean, but sometimes you can check, um, you can inspect the element and look at the computed styles or look at the styles that are being applied and you can see your thing that's being, you've, you've got margin left on it and it's just not, like, it's not being applied. Because you can check, if it's a specificity issue, check the inspector, uh, like the dev tools, um, inspect the element, look at what CSS rules are being applied. They get written out in all the order that they're applied. And if they're being overridden, if there's a specificity thing that means that rule is not being applied, it will have a line through it. It will be str mm. struck out. So you can instantly see, oh, right, something's overriding this. And then you can go hunting to find out what it is. Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. But also, yeah, we're venturing now into another thing that's really useful to learn if you want to be really good at CSS, and that's the intricacies of the box model. So this is the padding and how padding and margin and width and height all play together. There are lots of nuances mm -hmm. and a lot of it depends on the display property. So display block elements behave differently to inline elements. And then you have inline block elements, which kind of are a mix of the two. <laughs> and then there's flex elements, which behaves differently still. All of these yep. different rules, like they're putting in a different context in which a margin is going to behave slightly differently. Yeah. That's annoying. Yes, but there's, <laughs> there's literally like five of them, so you can learn it. It's not impossible. Right. <laughs> it's just another thing to be aware of. Um, so like span elements are inline by default, whereas divs are block by default, that kind of thing that you you just kind of internalize this knowledge eventually. Um, and it does make sense why these things are the way they are, because you don't want spans of, spans of text inside other strings of text. So you want to kind of apply a different style to a bit of text. In The reason it's called inline is because it will be in line, in line with the text as it goes along. That's what mm -hmm. it's built to do. So it behaves it behaves in a way that it will work in the flow of a paragraph of text. Um, and there are other elements like that. Um, and then block elements are meant to behave like blocks. Um, I generally advise people to avoid... I mean, another thing that messes this up is float, floating left and floating right. Yeah. And having to worry, like... Uh, Clearfix is just a term that will just make a lot of people shudder because it's a thing they've had to do. Like float bugs are really, really annoying. Grid is amazing, and I love that grid exists. But flex, flexbox, and that display model just changed my life because I didn't have to worry about clearfixing <laughs> things. Um, and they got 
for those that aren't familiar with a clear fix, it's when you float an element, its container will collapse because it get, this is coming into the, the height of CSS being weird. It's very dependent on the, its content which is great in certain circumstances, but if you want to float two things next to them and have them the same height, I mean, good luck. It's, it's possible. I spent, I, I built my career doing that. <laughs> That's like, <Yeah. laughs> those are the things I was paid to do when I first started. Um, it's a lot easier now. Flexbox makes that like a doddle. Um, so learn Flexbox. I mean, uh, Chris Coyer, who was on the show last week, go to his website, CSS Tricks, look up his Flexbox cheat sheet that has literally everything you need to know about how Flexbox works. Um, learn that if you're doing if you're doing a lot of CSS because that will just make your life a lot easier. Um, mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where you have like the first twenty times you do it, it's a real pain, and you have to look it up, and you're like, oh, what is this? This is confusing. I'd, how am I ever going to remember this? But when you've done it fifty times, it's fine. And then you turn. I mean, once you know it, you're doing it instinctively. If you're writing CSS every day, you're doing it hundreds of times a day. You're writing these things. Yeah. So it's worth the investment to learn. Hmm. This is good. There's some real, like the the I guess the the fundamentals of, of yeah. CSS that we're finding out about. Yeah. Did we, did we talk? Did we talk about the box sizing property as well? Uh, we didn't. No, that think. that's another thing. Like if padding and border, and mar not so much margin, but padding and border will affect the width of a thing. So if you've got a box that's 100 pixels wide and you give it a padding of 10 pixels it's gonna be that box is now 120 pixels wide um, right. and if you add a okay. border of two pixels that <laughs> that box is now 124 pixels wide <laughs> so that can cause problems sometimes as well so if you change box sizing to border box padding then goes inside the element i mean you can't see the more right. okay. i'm doing on the screen <laughs> yeah. it's very very uh, descriptive <laughs> <laughs> but so you've got a 100 pixel box wide put a 10 pixel padding on that and if you've got box sizing border box the padding is going to be inside of the box so the actual space inside the box will be 80 pixels wide but it means you can yeah. like what you're setting the width on is going to stay at the width that you set it yeah. yeah so i have a little trick that i use on all my projects which is to change the default box sizing property is uh i can't remember what it's called i never use it um but i have box sizing border box set at the top level of all my projects and then use the little star operator to make sure that cascades to everything and then every now and again you need to override it and you want you want the box model to behave differently um change that around if you like but yeah most of the time default to box sizing border box right yeah that kind of makes more sense to the brain doesn't it yeah if i guess <laughs> i do not i cannot get my head around the other way of doing it. i don't know why that's the default <laughs> so so maybe my maybe my next question coming up is also quite relevant to this <laughs> Why for some elements do I have to set, well, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but I, I have set at some point min width, max width, and width, and then it actually ends up being the width. Whereas if I take one of those away, it doesn't It doesn't do it. This might be something in tables more. I don't know. It's a combination. This might I mean, just be yeah, without, bad CSS. <laughs> yeah, without specific instances in front, it could well be the, uh, the box model coming into play. But I suspect if you're putting min width and max width, and that is making a change, and regular width, isn't doing what you want yes then that's common yeah, yeah yeah that feels like a specificity thing i bet if you open up your inspector and you look at the elements you'll find that your regular width is being overridden somewhere because min width and max width are both slightly more specific than regular width uh -huh. um because you want to which is makes logical sense because you want this thing to be 100 pixels wide all the time but uh or you want it to be 100 percent wide sorry all the time 
except mm-hmm. if it reaches 600 pixels. So you have a max width of 600 pixels, so it'll never get bigger than that. And you don't ever want it to go smaller than 325 pixels because that's the size of the smallest phone. Um, uh, if it goes smaller than that, it's just going to look really weird. So you put those two rules on, and that bounds this otherwise flexible container. That's, yeah. that's the proper use of min width and, and max width. <laughs> um, if you're <laughs> setting min width to the same as width, if you're setting an explicit value, explicit pixel value or rem or m value to width, and then you're having to set a max width or a min width to make it be that width, that's a specificity yeah. bug. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I've definitely uh, I've definitely set min width and max width when width isn't working. <laughs> so that is a hack. And your first <laughs> response should be open your web inspector, look at what elements are being applied, see if that width is struck through or if there's another width above it that's causing problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good stuff. Wow. So <laughs> seems like uh, CSS knowledge is never ending. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of very complicated things, but thank you. Yeah. So I think, uh, was it that I might have a look at SAS? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, not. I'd recommend it. Um, and you, you don't. I'm going to say you do not need it. I learned it when it was new and shiny and was amazing and solved so many problems. Quite a few of the problems it solves aren't problems anymore. So if you're yeah, happy, yeah. if you're if you're at home listening to this, you're happy with vanilla CSS. Get really good at that. That's fine. Don't yeah. don't be don't feel like you have to learn preprocessors. I mean, where it becomes really useful is when we talked about. Um, browser prefixes last in the last CSS episode, didn't we? Um, which is where you have like dash WebKit dash rule yeah, for experimental yeah. features and things. Having like to do all that stuff manually is a real pain. I mean, mm-hmm. at the very least, get some kind of post CSS plugin going in and auto prefix your things. Um, so you don't have to bother with that when you're doing fancy box shadow stuff that <laughs> isn't necessarily... It's supported everywhere. It works everywhere, but sometimes you need browser prefixes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I would recommend an automation step of some kind. You don't have to use SAS or less or anything like that if you don't want to. Yeah, I think I might definitely, well, I I definitely will use the custom properties uh, tomorrow. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't know about those at all. So that's fantastic. So I'm going to throw those in. And SAS is good to know for job security as well. Like we talk a lot about React being a thing that you learn and you get a job. If you work in the web, you're going to come across projects that are using SAS. Yep. Yeah. In yeah. the last five, six, seven, eight years, I've never come across a less project once. Everywhere <laughs> I've worked has used SAS or vanilla okay. CSS. Or the tiny projects sometimes, or really old ones, still use vanilla CSS. Most of the time it's SAS. If you learn <laughs> SAS, it's good. You, you're, going to, you're not wasting your time if you learn it. I'm just saying you don't like, need it if you're working on your own project and you're building a startup and it's all greenfield. Fabulous. <laughs> I guess there's some there'll, there'll be some overlap perhaps between SAS and less as well. That, oh, well, just getting to the habit of doing yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, and thank you at home for listening to this week's episode of A Question of Code. Make sure you check us out on Twitter at AQO Code, and you can find us online at aqoc.dev or aquestionofcode.com, where you can find all the information of how to get in touch and suggest topics for future episodes. Make sure you're subscribed if you haven't already, and please do tell as many people as possible so that we can help spread the knowledge around to as many new developers as possible. Hope to see you next time. Bye. Cheerio.